Welcome to EdTech Adventures. Join us as we explore the role of technology, STEM, and creative play in education. With expert guests, we'll discover how learning is always an adventure. Today, we'll be exploring how to harness the magic of storytelling to create engaging games and learning experiences. From dragons to villains to heroic feats, our guest will share how he's used storytelling and game design techniques to create immersive experiences for players of all ages. Design director and author of Demon Dance and Mind of the Beast, Brian Fryermuth has designed games for over 25 years, working on hit titles such as Fallout, Star Trek Starfleet Academy, Epic Mickey 2, The Power of Two, Minecraft Story Mode, Five Nights at Freddy's Security Breach, and our very own game, Azaria. You can find out more about Brian's games and books at novelsandgames.com. Thank you so much for joining our podcast, Brian. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I'd like to start the podcast with a simple question. Could you describe mm -hmm. a memorable education experience that you've had as a student? For me, it goes back to elementary school. I grew up in a small little town called Manitou Springs. And so you know, when I was going to Manitou Springs Elementary School, I will always remember my fifth grade teacher. His name was Mr. Denver. And he was the very first one who had an assignment to write a short story. So before then, it was all just the regular elementary school stuff, but he actually had like a quarter, like a test or something where you had to actually write a short story. And so my very first short story I ever wrote was called A Walk in the Clouds. My mother still has it. She still has it in her storage. It was like 10 pages or something. And it was a whole Jack and the Beanstalk thing where a kid like climbs up into the clouds and he finds this castle and this fantastic land up there. And so even back then I was building worlds. Even back then I was doing more fantasy stuff for my very first short story. And so, yeah, he ignited that in me uh, that just kept going all throughout my, my education. Wow. It's interesting that you hadn't even explored storytelling before that grade. Yeah, I always did these things like I would do tapes, like cassette tapes, showing my age now. Right, yeah. Uh, I, I would do these cassette tapes where I would mimic movies that I would watch. And so when I was in elementary school, I would do like a whole series of set tapes with different voices and everything, basically redoing the movies that I watched. But I never really made anything that was me up until that point in fifth grade. And that was the very first time where I, I found out that I could actually create something out of nothing without watching movies or without mimicking something just completely out of thin air. So yeah, that's what was exciting about that one. <laughs> that's a great aha moment. Have yeah. you recently read your story from way back when? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I have not in a very long time. The funny thing is that I actually wrote a novel in high school. And that I still have somewhere in the garage. And I came across that a couple of years ago oh, and I literally oh, no. looked at the first page and went, oh, oh, that's awful. Oh, it's so bad. I have, I have that too. I have a 30 page YA novel I wrote in sixth grade and I'm afraid <laughs> to read it. <laughs> but I guess it's just the process too of wanting to write something that ignited it all, right? Yeah, exactly. So equally important is how did you get interested in the world of game design? For me, it was a game called Pirates. It was called Sid Meier's Pirates, actually. It was a simulation game. And Pirates was the first time that a game 
let me do whatever I wanted because it was the first open world game that I'd ever played because it's literally, if you don't know the game, you start off as a pirate, you get your own ship, and then they just let you off into the Caribbean. And they actually created a top-down of the entire Caribbean with all the towns that were back then and everything. And you could go anywhere and be a pirate. You could go after the Spanish Silver Fleet. You could take out towns. Uh, they did a remake of it in like 2014 that, thank goodness, kept all the, the same kind of game design because it was the one thing that as a kid, I realized how good, because I was a huge story person, but there wasn't really no story in this. And I'm like, why am I still playing this? And I remember analyzing this as a kid and realizing just everything was so smooth and everything was so integrated. The ship combat was really fun and really deep. There was like sword fencing combat in the towns that you would have to use the different keys and stuff for strategy. And so that way it kind of brought it all together. And that's when I started programming on the Commodore 64 and making my own choose your own adventure games. Because wow. I was a huge choose your own adventure kid growing up reading all the books. So yeah, that actually is what got me started making games. But it's funny though, because I was always writing, 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 you know, starting with the walk in the clouds. Right. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't know what I wanted to do until my senior year when I realized I could actually make games for a living. You can actually do that now because this was after like the golden age when all the big games start coming out. How did you enter the world of the game industry? And it sounds like your senior year, you went, okay, I know what I want to do with the rest of my life. Kind of, because at that point, there was no such thing as a game designer. There was producers, there was programmers, and they are all the ones who made the game. So I'm like, well, I don't want to be a producer. I'm going to be a programmer. So I went to college for programming. There was no game design courses back then that you could take. The only design class I took was with the guy who created Miss Pac-Man. Really? Wow. Yep. But his curriculum was, we were making Coke machines and elevator systems. That was design back then. <laughs> and I'm like, this is really awful. And so just chatting with the teacher after class, me and four other kids decided to go after class and do a bunch of game design, like game jams almost with this, you know, uh, Dr. Ackerman, who made uh, Miss Pac-Man. And so after school, we were making like hearts games because back then the internet was just starting on colleges. You had the intranet on colleges. There was no such thing as the internet. There was no AOL yet at that point. But we were making little like hearts card game on this intranet in the little corner over here so that no one could catch us doing this stuff on the college networks. But the big break was my wife, Juliet, took me to a party. She brought me over. She introduced me to this guy named Scott Campbell. And me and him just spent the entire night talking about game design and video games because he worked for a company called Interplay. So I told him I wanted to be a programmer. He told me he could see what he could do. And he calls me up the next week and he says, I can't get you in as a programmer, but we have something called a game designer opening. And, and if you watch, you wait. can go into the programming later on. Wait, wait, like, wait. No, no, so no, no, surprise, no. there actually was a game design role by the time you graduate, like by the time you finished yep, was in college. Was in, I, was well finished, in college. I, wasn't even, I wasn't even finished college. This was my third year in college. Oh, wow. Uh, so, so that's how quickly the game industry can change. It sounds yeah. like. 
Yeah, because when I first started college, there was no such thing as a game designer. And then by the time I started, I was one of a very few game designers in the entire industry because you still had producers, you still had programmers that were all designing the games. But these bigger companies that were doing these role-playing games, these massive games with so much story and quests, and they couldn't do it with the programmer. And so they are hiring these things called game designers to come in and write quests and to, and to write all this documentation because there was no tools back then. There was no Unreal. There was no Unity. Uh, we would have to write it all down on paper, hand it off to a programmer, and they would be the one that implement it. And we'd go, no, that's wrong. And we'd go back and forth and back and forth. So yeah, I went in as a game designer, which is tough even nowadays. But back then, that was the luckiest break I could ever have. Because the funny thing was is that Scott was like, yeah, you can be a programmer later. And I'm like, no, that's okay. That's okay. And I will tell everyone who's wanting to get into any kind of industry, I completely failed my interview. I answered everything wrong when I was talking to this guy because I was so intimidated. This was the guy who made Wasteland, which was one of my favorite games of all time. I had this interview with this guy named Alan Pavlish. And uh, I failed it completely. And I still got the job because they liked my enthusiasm about the game because when I found it was wasteland I, I could tell because I played like four times all the way through and so I could tell them all these facts and details and all that kind of stuff which is also how I got onto wasteland 2 which which then became fallout because I was the resident wasteland expert because I had played the game like a dozen times it sounds so, like passion pays off i mean you were passion passion definitely pays off yes right. and i'm finding that even nowadays as i'm hiring designers you always want someone with the passion in the ed tech you want someone who really wants to help kids and loves helping kids and it's also clear you were letting your passion drive your decisions you could have yeah. just taken that class but your passion led you to basically you created a game design club after yeah. school game design club. Yep, an after school game design club because we had nothing to do but Coke machines. And so right. it was like, no, and I want to make games. I want, come on, give me games. Yep, exactly. <laughs> now that you've looked at all the amazing games you've played, what parts are you looking the most forward to when you're designing a game? For me, it's a lot of the beginning and the end. The middle is always a slog and you always get through it. It's kind, of, it's kind of like writing a book where you're like really excited at the beginning and you're getting all the world built and you're doing all the stuff and then you get to the middle and you're like, all right, I just got to push through. I just got to figure out what my next milestone is. So for me, even the start of a game, uh, I love world building. I love creating the world. I love creating the design from scratch. I like just getting all of that out and brainstorming with the team and, and all of that creativity that flies around. And also for me, I, I kind of really like starting from the beginning because I don't get a chance to do it very often. So for me, that's always something special when I can start at the beginning and start building the game. And then on the opposite side, I love it at the end when you start seeing everything coming together, all this passion, all this heartache, Everything that you're putting into this game, you're finally seeing it come to fruition. And that's when you can just sit back and go, okay, that's what we wanted. Yeah. I think it's the moment when it no longer looks like a total disaster. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I feel like it's always in the middle of the design process where everything looks like a mess. You oh, don't yeah. know if you're ever going to get it done. Especially, I mean, Telltale, I think had a lot of that where we would be on an episode for six months. And it would just, it would just be all just temp, 
up until the last four weeks of the project. And then it would all just come together. All the animation and the art and the VO would finally come in from the actors. And, and it's just like within the last three, four weeks, it just everything just came together in this big flood rush. But up until that point, you had a lot of people who are like, is it going to work? <laughs> I'm hoping it's going to work. I think it's going to work. I have hope and faith it's going to work. And then it did. You, you use the word temp. For those of people who don't know what that means, could you elaborate what temp means when you're talking about the process? Oh, temp temporary stuff. So it's like temporary animations, temporary art, no lighting. Until the script was finalized, you can't record final voiceover. You can't get the actor in to do the final voice for the characters. So we would have people on the team, some of them not actors, literally reading these lines just to try to pace it out and just to try to get in the game and just to try to implement it. And comedy is all in the timing. And so it, we had to see in our head what it was supposed to be. And, I, and it's funny because I see the making of Frozen 2 and I see the making of these animation movies. It's all the same. You see this where like Frozen 2 spends so much time in all this temporary animation and, and they're cutting stuff and changing stuff. And finally, in the last three months of the project, they're seeing final animation going, does it work? Oh, thank goodness it works. Yes, it does. Well, it sounds like the doubt of the in-between seems like not your favorite part of the process. <laughs> Are there any other parts of the game design process that you often find the most difficult or challenging? Well, from a game designer, the, the most interesting thing about our job, and this is why for so long there wasn't such a thing as a game designer. And also when I started at Interplay, I was a game designer, but no one really knew what that meant. And so no one really knew where our job ended or how much you know, power we had or what, what, even what our job was. We literally were making it up on the fly. And because it's not like a programmer who can write all the code, do a code review, see the things on screen and go, yep, it's good. Or an artist who can make a 3D model or make a 2D drawing, put it in and see it and go, okay, tweak this, tweak that. As a game designer, our job is to stick what's in our head and put it on paper and make it clear enough so that the team who's looking at it knows what to do. But the big thing I've learned, and this is something that even took me a really long time to learn. And that's when I finally started realizing one of the things that game designers do is they will make a mechanic, let's say a character customization, and they'll hand it off to people and they'll say, just do it, it'll be fun. What I'm starting to learn now that the better thing for a team is to know the why, to know the why behind every mechanic in the game. So if you have a character customization and you want the artists to do it and you want the programmers to do it and you want them all on the same page, the best way is to tell them why we're doing it. Like we need character customization so that the player can feel unique, so that they can feel like they're putting themselves in the game and it gives them ownership of the game. You tell a programmer that or an artist that and they go, oh, okay, that's why I'm doing it. That's so funny that you say that because in the world of curriculum design, me too, a recent discovery is the importance of starting with the why, not just for the students, yeah. but also the teachers and also for the people who are building the curriculum. So it's so funny that in both industries, yeah. realizing how important the why is even from the very beginning of the design process. 
Yeah, because I mean, even I used to just put a mechanic out there and, and, and don't understand why people aren't passionate about it. I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. Why isn't anyone seeing that? Because they don't know why they're doing it. For the last few years, I've been really focusing on that when it comes to the team. I focused on that in Code Combat. Everything was about why are we doing the mechanics we're doing? Why are we doing this mechanic and not that mechanic? And that carried over to Stillwell Studios as too with Five Nights at Freddy's Security Breach is that anything that was being changed or come up with, I had to make sure that the team knew why we were doing it. I agree, especially again, the messy middle where you can lose sight of what you're building. Yeah. <laughs> it's always a great compass or lodestone to always go back to that why that you've established at the beginning. Yeah. It's only recently in the game industry that I've heard of the term pillars, which the pillars of a project are your why of why you're making the project. And it's only in the last few years that companies have started doing this. We're like, all right, before we start a project, here's our four pillars. Here's the things that are most important to us. And in that messy middle where you're going, what do we have to cut? What do we have to add? What do we have to change? You go back to those pillars and you realize, okay, that's what we're doing. That's our focus. That determines everything, all the changes that we're doing right now. And how about storytelling? How does storytelling play a role in the game design process for you? There are some game designers who start with mechanics. There are some game designers who start with the world. Uh, but for me, I always like to know where I'm going, kind of the goalpost of where the story is going. And that for me also determines where you're going with the mechanics. If this story calls for this certain kind of area or this certain kind of, of bad guy, at least it, it, it informs you and gives you that hint. I do know that, like I said, there are, there are some designers and there's some great games out there that start with the mechanic first. Where it's like, I really want to make a game where you are alien hunters and you're top down and it's all turn-based game and you're hunting aliens through a city. But even then, if you think about it, that's kind of the story, right? And so it's, it always starts with that. It always starts with that. What is the world? What is the story you're trying to tell at a very, very high overview? And then the game comes from there. And that's, that's how Azaria started because Azaria was especially the challenge of how do we teach something? How do we put a story around something like this where the kids have to code? We had the game mechanics from Code Combat of the character running around the levels, but how do we build a story around that? I mean, what do we do with coding? How do we give it stakes? How did you get introduced to Code Combat and what was your story behind joining Code Combat for the building of Azaria? Yeah, I was looking for work because Telltale had just gone under. And so I was looking for something different at this point. And it was a friend of mine who was looking for me, looked up like lead game designer and went to like page 20 on the Google and there was Code Combat. And so the first one was Code Combat that I called because it, it was an edutainment company that makes games. I'm like, oh, wow, that is something different. <laughs> That is something different. So uh, yeah, called them up, had the interview, talked with Nick, the owner of the company, and talked with Matt, who is the, the CTO uh, of the company, and then talked to a bunch of people. And it was just like, there was a place that had a mission, which was nice because I had been entertaining adults and children for 
God knows how long, 20 some odd years at that point. Uh, you know, because I had spent some time in the kids realm with Epic Mickey 2 and with Minecraft Story Mode. And so I liked entertaining kids. I liked how they grasped onto it wholeheartedly. And we would get letters about mothers who had kids that were like sick and played Minecraft Story Mode and it made them feel better. And so I was already starting to feel that. But then when I found Code Combat, it was this mission of, okay, how do we then use everything I've learned, all, everything I've done in the entertainment industry, and make that so that kids can learn while also being engaged in that? And so that for me was the kicker with Code Combat. And it didn't help that the first conversations I had with a few people there were all about inclusion, which was great because... A lot of my friends, really, especially in the game industry in the beginning, if you were a woman in the game industry, you didn't code. You were not programmers. You were artists. You were UI artists. We had lots of women in marketing, but it, it, it was something that society frowned upon. And so that's gotten a lot better over the years, a lot better in the game industry. But for me to have a company that wants to take that little girl who was told that she couldn't program or that she's not good at math and show her something that is fun and engaging and shows her that coding is fun and she can do it. That was a great kind of mission statement too. Definitely. That definitely drew me in as well. I did big passion of mine as well as this <sighs> inclusion piece. And then clearly you went into the interview and went challenge accepted. It's not an easy challenge to take on. <laughs> Yeah, especially like I, I just used to just entertaining. And so to come in and basically be thrown into this where it's like, all right, you're entertaining, but you got to make sure that you're also teaching. <laughs> yep. The combination of those two was always fun. What were the main differences that you noticed in the game design process now that you also had a focus on also teaching specific concepts in the game? There was a lot of similarities to begin with. There was a lot of trying to bring engagement to the game, but we always started from learning first. You would start from that process of, okay, what are we trying to teach in this level? Because we got to make sure that that's the highest priority. And then at that point, you step back and you go, okay, now that we know what we're trying to teach, how do we then make it engaging? How is this part of the story? How does the story flow through this? What is the kids doing as they're playing through it? How are they progressing through the game? All the little design tricks and stuff that you do over the years to lead players along, to give them goals, to keep them engaged and make sure they're not confused in a level. All of that was having to be put in after the learning part of that. So yeah, that was the biggest difference in between the, the two types of games. Were there any challenges in doing that? Because the game slash storytelling isn't the priority. What were some challenges that you ran into? The biggest challenges that I remember are the capstones. Because at least when you're going through the main part of the game, it was more of a linear game. At that point, we had to teach for loops and we had to teach while loops and we had this stuff, but it was still kind of a, of a forward progression of here's your character and here's their starting point. And then here's their maze that they have to get through. Here's the puzzle that they have to do. And so code at that point was more of a mechanic to solve a puzzle. And we always, we had that, we always had the mandate of, okay, when 
the, the puzzle always has to be seen. And you always kind of have to know what the puzzle is, even if you don't know how to solve it. And that goes back to the player knowing what their goal is, knowing what their objective is. So that, that was a little bit easier. And then we got to these things where we weren't making a game for the player to go from A to B. We were making the tools for the students to make their own games for their own players. And all of those had to be within the envelope of what they had learned so far. Well, we know that you don't know anything about programming because you're at the end of chapter one, but we're going to give you some tools to make a game and we're going to try to make it so that it seems like it's very unique. So that was the big challenge, especially with the earlier ones, like the gauntlet maze in chapter one, because at that point they'd done such a rudimentary tutorial that it's like, all right, how do we go about making it so that they feel like they can make the game their own and make it unique? So we had them change art. We had them change the speed of things. We had them change some of the, the boss stuff just to kind of give them a taste. Uh, for me, my favorite was chapter two, though, because the story tools that we gave them to create their own choose your own adventure really kind of let them do whatever, whatever story they wanted. That one was, was the most enjoyable to, to kind of design. I'll need to share this link with you. We just shared it on social media. There was one girl who just recently wrote 250 lines of code for StoryMaker. What? Oh my Tons Lord. of choice. And it just blew the teacher oh, away. Oh my Lord. And another kid's doing a rap battle. <laughs> I like that. I think I agree. It's very meta slash inception that mm. you're having the kids play a game to learn how to code. And then to make they have game. to then design a game using code. <laughs> yep. And yeah. so that was that that was one of the biggest challenges I remember in the beginning when me and the other designers were sitting down and, and trying to come up with what these capstones were, because we kept pigeonholing ourselves into creating a game for the students to just tweak a little bit. And it's like, no, we're making the tools for a game. So trying to make a full game and a game maker at the end of every chapter. It was amazing what we were able to pull off, though. It really yeah. was. It wasn't stressful at all. Um, back to storytelling. What was the role of storytelling in developing? As well, in the beginning, like I said, we started with this, how do we even make a story with it? Because we knew we needed one. Because stories engage kids. Stories engage people uh, of all ages, players when they're playing games the games that have the best story are the ones, in my opinion, that you remember the most. Because you always remember emotion more than you remember hard facts. You ask a kid if they remember what happened in a Harry Potter book, and they'll probably tell you every single detail. And then you ask them what they learned in math next week. Unless they love math, they probably are not going to tell you in detail in the same kind of enthusiasm that they did when talking about like, Harry Potter and, and and all that kind of stuff. And it also, in a lot of ways, storytelling also, it's like a magician's act. And this is the one thing that we were trying to do from the beginning of Azaria that, that Code Combat also had in its goal. And that was, how do you make it so that the kids are playing through a game and they're learning something, but they don't quite know they're learning it? Where it's like a subconscious learning almost, where it's like, they get through a bunch of levels and by the end of it, they're like, oh, I know how to do it. You know, for Azaria, we did a lot more like actual standard teaching 
in the cinematics before the levels. But the levels were always about reinforcing that. And the storyline was about reinforcing that and letting them learn stuff without without it feeling like they're being lectured to or feeling like they're being talked from a, from a teacher in the front of the classroom. Because one of the big things that I tried to do with all of the cinematics when I was writing them is do that kind of back and forth that sounded like real dialogue. Vega was the straight man and the player character was a little bit more sarcastic, always kind of liked to, to needle Vega. And so while they're learning stuff, there was a back and forth of humor and, and story and personality so that it would feel like two people just talking instead of Vega just sitting up and basically just bleh, spewing exposition and spewing teaching uh, on the kids when they were trying to play the game. So that for me is what, what brought a lot of that kind of engagement to the game. I remember you always wanting to rein me in on, on, I, I was prone to over Vegas. <laughs> You'd always have to like, no, we got to throw in a joke in here. <laughs> there was a point where we had to cut because of time and budget and, and also just try to get the length of time down on the cinematics because some of them had to go really long because they were teaching really complex stuff. But there were times where it's like, yeah, you know, someone look at and go, oh, we might have to cut that. And I'm like, nope, we can't. Because that's the one joke in the entire cinematic that alleviates the mood, brings the kids back to the fact that it's an actual story. And I also like how you didn't hold back on other mechanics, story mechanics, like cliffhangers and mm-hmm. things like that. What made you decide to go with those types of storytelling mechanics in the game? It's the one thing I saw in... Uh, a few of the the edutainment titles and and the ones that actually and even games sometimes that are made for kids is that a lot of people don't feel like it needs like a full story structure but what they don't understand is that kids love stories watch a kid on a playground with a friend or or even by himself and they will make up huge dramas in their heads and it's full of all of the ups and downs and and the climaxes and and the dark nights of the soul and and all of that because stories are universal. Just because they're young kids doesn't mean they don't enjoy that. Harry Potter showed it. Suddenly you have these books that, that are just ginormous and you have kids that are like eight years old reading it and you have 80 year olds reading it. And it's because the story was so compelling. And so I was looking through some of these education titles and I was going, where's the story? Where's the thing that engaging? So that was one of the things that when I had the interview, when I was talking with Nick and, and the very first thing I was saying is that I want a story for this game and it, and it's not, it's just going to be a, a, a light and fluffy, no conflict kind of story. I want stakes. I want, you have the darkness with the world ending stakes. You have at the end of chapter three, you have the dark night of the soul. You have the ups and the downs and all these twists and turns that go through it. And for me, that gave it a weight that a lot of games don't do. I love that because it it takes from traditional gameplay and puts it in the edutainment world, which I think we need more of. Definitely, I think we need more of. Yes. Azari, I think, is just an initial, like, it's our attempt Mm -hmm. at doing it. And there are kids who absolutely love it. There are kids who just want straightforward dungeon crawler. (laughs) Totally (laughs) get it. 
<laughs> but I agree there's more room for it in the world of ed tech. So for you, how do you see the role of games and storytelling playing a role in the future of ed tech? So I would love to see in the future, and if this makes any sense, I would love to see games that teach more than teaching programs that are gamified. Because there's a whole thing out there about gamifying, which is a great first step. Don't get me wrong. It's a great way to start thinking about making educational software more engaging for children. But a lot of them stop at gamification, which is just, oh, you're teaching two plus two equals four. And here's a little mini game for two plus two equals four that looks like Tetris. And then you're teaching three times three equals nine. And it's a completely separate mini game that's completely different in mechanics. And here's another little mini game that you play. And so for me, I would love for the edutainment industry to start really thinking about why games are as popular as they are. You might, you might think one thing or another, and, or you might have your own opinion about games, but the point is that they are engaging and they are huge with kids and with adults. And there's a reason for it. And there's techniques that have been, you know, honed over the years and decades that games have been going that the educational industry can learn from. And that's what I mean by, I want to see more games that teach instead of more teaching programs that are tried to make into a game afterwards. Because if you remember with Ozaria, they were hand in hand. Yeah, we started with, we started with the teaching goals and the educational goals first, but we had to use these techniques from the game industry to, to keep it going. One of the big examples, and, and you might remember this, was for the longest time, we were making these levels that were completely different from other levels. Like they were just mechanics that were like completely unique to any other thing. And it was at that point that I realized that what we were doing was not keeping those mechanics standard and building off of them. Because if the player's trying to learn a mechanic, they're probably not learning what's trying to be taught in that level. Because the brain can only process so much. And if they're learning, they're learning three new mechanics while also trying to learn four loops, that's going to be tough. <laughs> that's, that's going to be tough for them. And that's what I mean by the whole game gamification thing is that if the kids like have to jump into a mini game and learn that mini game, it's going to be harder to learn the concepts that are trying to be taught if they're needing to learn the game again. And to define game mechanic, it's a a rule of the game, right? It's, yeah, okay. yeah. Game, game mechanics are, are basically anything in the game that the player does that the game reacts to. Running, jumping. And for Ozaria, it was a little bit different because a game mechanic was also the code. Because learning for loops was a game mechanic because you would type out the code and the game would do something with that code. Mm -hmm. So by its very definition, coding in our game was a game mechanic. And so we always had to balance that. It's like, all right, we just introduced the fire spell or the earth spell. We can't really 
introduce another thing yet because we're also trying to teach them how to do a for loop. Right. Yeah. And the two can't really fight each other where no. one conflicts with the other's set of rules. Yeah. Yeah. No, not at all. We had a couple of times where we had that when we had to go back to the drawing board for the game mechanics because the teaching was always the priority, but it was always just what mechanics go around that. And I think we did a surprisingly good job of doling out the mechanics through the game so that it wasn't as confusing as it could have been. And that that's one thing I'm, I'm really incredibly proud of when it comes to Azaria is it took a while and it took a lot of iterations, but it's just like, all right, how do we teach something, but also make a game out of it? Because you have to throw new stuff at players or else they get bored. And so that's the contradiction of, okay, we don't want to introduce too many game mechanics, but we've gone seven levels where, and, we, and we haven't introduced anything more. We got to introduce something else. And that's when we come up, we came up with the earth totems. We came up with like the water totems and all the magic in the game that would do things in the actual world. So I was really proud of that. It's such a fine balance. And I think that's why your example of a math game where they just add a mini game it's just so much easier it, <laughs> yeah, can be it's, it's, it is so much easier <laughs> yeah always it, so much easier it sounds like in your opinion it's worth the extra effort right yeah i, I think it is and, and i think i think when you see more games start to do it uh i, I think it'll it'll get it'll get a little more mainstream i think at least that's my hope. I want to see impact. I want to see kids in the classroom playing through a game and going, this is really cool. I really, I really like these characters. I really like this story. I'm really having fun with the mechanics. And that's the one thing we tried to do. Like you said, there are some kids who love the story and there are some kids who just want to jump into the levels. And that was all our kind of difficulty of, okay, we had these cinematics that had a lot of story and a lot of teaching and, and a lot of stuff, but we knew there were kids that were just going to fast forward through it. So the levels themselves had to also just reinforce it and repeat it and get that in their head so it becomes more of a habit. Just in case. And speaking of storytelling, we, we see games out there too that are game-based, aren't just gamification, yeah. games only fully wrapped, but there's just no storytelling at all. How do you see the role of storytelling playing an impact in the future? Uh, for me, it's another hope. I hope they look to games to figure out how to do an interactive story. Because like I said before, I feel that it, it adds that extra level that gives kids that immersion and that stories that they tell themselves anyway, you know, because kids always just, they love stories. They love all of that. And I think that people don't need to be afraid of it. If we could figure out how to do a story about making a code and making a game to trap darkness <laughs> and make it work with all the ups and downs and twists and turns, I don't want to hear people complaining about their, about their entertainment games <laughs> in a lot of ways. I also hope to see Maybe a kid playing it and going, I can one up on this. I'm going to start my after school game design club. Yep. And yep, make, yep. And ma my, and make my own stories, make my 235 <laughs> lines of code story, choose your own adventure. I want to see that so bad because that's that that just warms my heart. And some girl <laughs> went through it. Did, that's like a novel. That's amazing. I will send you the link. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and then for those out there who are interested in using storytelling and game design, 
for the ed tech space, what advice would you give them? I think my biggest piece of advice goes back to what we were talking about before, and that is try to make your mechanics consistent. Try to look at the games that are out there that are popular and try to redo a deep dive into why those games are popular. Don't just dismiss them. Don't just say, oh, they're entertainment and they're nothing like what I'm doing because there's a lot of stuff you can learn from the game industry. And one of those is keeping your mechanics consistent throughout your game, doling out the mechanics a little bit at a time. Because like I said before, once a kid is learning their 10th mechanic or their 11th mechanic in in the last five minutes, they're not going to be learning what you're trying to teach them anyways. And so I, I think my biggest piece of advice is just look at games. Don't think that's just entertainment and it's not what you're doing and has nothing to do with educational software. Look, really look at games and, and figure out why the games are as popular as they are and, and how you can integrate that into your own product. And how about for the teacher who's looking into adding more storytelling and games into their classroom? Do you have any advice for them? I think there's a lot of ways that you can incorporate games and storytelling within your own classroom without having to be an English teacher, without having to be an actual creative writing class. And I wish more teachers in my high school had done this too, because it's like when you write nonfiction, let's say, going off a little bit of a tangent here, but when you write nonfiction, the best nonfiction are the nonfiction that tells a story, which seems like an oxymoron in a way where it's like, wait a minute, how can you be writing about, you know, this political figure or something and tell a story too? It's all in how you do it. Because people still love the story. They still love the drama of going through a story. There's a reason why Hamilton, the musical, is, you know, huge at this point. Yeah, it's not totally historically accurate. But it's taking something that you're teaching the class and making an example, giving a story about why things are supposed to be like they are. The, the best science class I ever had in college was a geology class of all things, where it seems like it would be the most dry thing on the planet, and it could have been, but the teacher was very much into the history and the stories behind all of these gems and the stories behind the earth and the stories behind these rocks and how they were made. And she created that kind of atmosphere of storytelling while teaching what could have been one of the most driest thing ever. And so it's the same kind of thing, even with edutainment games that don't have a story or don't have something, having a teacher coming up with the why or coming up with even a story to cover up, to put on top of the games or to do things like Google slides or cutouts or anything that kind of tells a story on how they are and why they are what they are, I think could help a lot with just the, the educational society in general. Yeah, I love how we've circled all the way back to the why. Yep, circled all the way back to the why. And because it it does all come back to that. And even when you're teaching something, knowing the why of what that is and knowing the story behind it just gives you that immersion and gives you that, oh, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Instead of just here's the periodic table, learn it. Teach, you know, why those chemicals are the way they are. 
Teach them why we need them. Why did we need the periodic table to begin with? You teach that kind of stuff and the kids will understand at that point, at least why they're learning it instead of just, oh, it's another table. It's another date. And that was my problem in high school with like history classes, especially because I got stuck with the history teachers that were very much just in this year, this person did this. And in this next year, this person did this, and then the war of 1812, and then this war, and then this war. And I'm sitting in the back going, just snoring. <laughs> so yeah, it's how to it always go back to the why. Just what is the story behind what you're teaching? And why should I care? And why should I even care? <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your experience, Brian. And thanks for visiting our podcast. Oh, you're welcome. This was a great time. This was fun. Thanks for listening to EdTech Adventures. Please subscribe to catch more of our episodes and leave a review to support the show. For more resources and info, visit us at codecombat.com podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Chang. We'll see you on our next learning adventure.